0: following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, we start chapter two this morning in the book of Philippians. So we took took us eight weeks to get through chapter one, and now we finally start chapter two in Philippians this morning. And what we've seen in chapter one has uh, been an encouragement. We call this the book of encouragement, an encouragement in two primary areas. First, encouragement for relationships, and we spent a few weeks talking about that, how to be an encouraging friend to others. And then we looked at encouragement in the midst of life's struggles, and we saw uh, encouragement there in the gospel, and how to live and feel and act and behave, and and how to hope in the midst of struggles. In chapter two, we're going to unpack, there's one theme in the whole chapter, and that is encouragement for humility. And, And then humility works out in different areas, humility for service to one another, humility for... Um, our attitude and our behavior Uh, but we'll take a few weeks to unpack all of chapter two and this morning i want to focus on just uh, verses one to five in philippians and so why don't we go there uh, together and i'll read this for us philippians two starting in verse one so if there is any encouragement in christ any comfort from love any participation in the spirit Any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus." And I know many of you are itching to so say, just read further, just keep going, you're getting to my favorite passage, and we will get there, we're going to spend a good amount of time in this. Um, but first, just these few verses. I'm a big fan of, of two-star movies, uh, so if a movie does not get good reviews, good chances are I will love it. <laughs> uh, if, it, were, if, it make, if it gets an Academy Award, I w- will probably be bored. Uh, anybody else with me on that? I just don't, I just don't get it. Um, so I was, I was channel surfing one day, and I came across this movie based on, I guess, a best-selling book called Divergent. All right? Hadn't heard of the book, hadn't heard of the movie, but I thought, oh, this is, this is I'll, I'll watch it. It got horrible reviews. I think I'll love it. Um, and I did. Here's the basic plot, though. It takes, takes place in the distant future. Um, the last city on Earth, Chicago is divided into distinct groups distinct groups of people based on their personality, their virtue, their skills, their aptitudes and values um, that they call factions. And so there's five different factions, or, yeah, five, selfless, brave, intelligent, peaceful, and honest. So these are the different virtues that a person might have, and they separate everybody else. Okay, you're brave, like, you're the security team, okay? Okay. Um, you're honest, ironically, you're all the lawyers, okay? Um, you're, I <coughs> told you it was a bad movie, but so each group or, or faction don't, they don't associate with each other. Uh, they only associate within their tribe. Uh, um, uh, they only contribute, though, to the, the, the better of the society. They contribute their virtue, their skills and ability for the society as a whole. And I know what you're thinking. This is a great idea. Why didn't we think about this? But it's a, it's a great commentary, I think, on the diagnosis and, a, and, and also a perceived solution to something that, that we are very good at as a people, as, as a society, and as humans. We are very good at fighting. We are very good at conflict. And the answer to this conflict and this fighting and these issues, from the outside, it seems so simple. Well, if you would just stop doing this, if you would just start doing this, if you would behave this way, or if you would gain more information or knowledge, if you would get more patience, or if you would be more like me, then conflict would go away. And so in order to have a peaceful society, come up with this idea of, okay, all people that are certain type like this, you go be together. And then that will remove conflict. And all people that are this type, you can go be over there. And the society was peaceful and perfect until this 16-year-old girl turns out to be divergent and means she doesn't fit into any one group, and, and a trilogy is born, right? <laughs> so we think, as, as, as this movie portrays, that the problem with fighting is, is stupidity. It's a lack of information. It's a lack of education or skill. Um... You don't understand what it's like to be a leader. You don't understand how to be patient. You need to learn how to be these things, and then we could get along. You don't know how to communicate. You don't know how to be sympathetic. And so if you would gain this information, then we could get along. And if we could categorize people according to their knowledge and education and skill and aptitude, then conflict will be eliminated. We'll all get along. And on the outside, looking in, it's so easy to say, why can't we put our differences aside and just... Be at peace with each other. We all have the answer to world peace, don't we? Just get over yourself. But we know that in the midst of fighting, in the midst of struggling, it's much more difficult than that. It's, you feel trapped. You feel isolated. You feel very frustrated. It's like, I know that if I look at, at a, a couple or a friend or even a societal problem, I could say, this. I know how to fix it. Why aren't they doing this? But when you're in the midst of conflict, it's so difficult. The Bible says that conflict comes not from a lack of knowledge or education or even a lack of desire for peace, but conflict comes from something very much deep inside of us. There is a problem that affects us all. And we all have the same need to be cured, and we need to get to the source of that need. And that, need, that source of that need is so deep inside of us that it's so hard to get to. But our passage this morning in Philippians 2 highlights that problem. It pursues that deep source, that deep root of all of our problem and conflict. And it gives us a very encouraging solution. The Bible shows us the root of this problem okay pete tell us what is this so that we can have it the bible shows us this route and it gives us a hint here in a couple passages and it's the hint is these three words and we're going to flesh out all these verses but first the hint is an introduction to this problem where it says do nothing from you see that in verse three whatever comes next i want you to know is so important when you see something like this in the bible do nothing from you say okay i'm listening uh that means that no matter what you do no matter Where you go, no matter what you're a part of, whatever comes next should never be the motivating factor in the life of a Christian. Do nothing from. And then he says, rivalry or conceit. So selfish ambition, rivalry or conceit. And let's look briefly at these uh, two and unpack this. The first one is do nothing from selfish ambition or rivalry. See, this is living in such a way that makes sure that we are better off than others. It's as living as as if Christ hasn't settled the score and we have to pursue our own score and be better than others. It's a certain kind of fighting that's not based on truth and facts and information, but it's based on prejudice and our need and our perceived need and our feelings. Let me give you an example. I was a senior in high school and I had just recently uh, been accepted and admitted to uh, the University of Arizona, all right? And I was living in Kentucky at the time. And so I was, I was, I was uh, a rare be- breed. Why are you going to Arizona? Why are you going way out there? I didn't know anybody else that was going to school out here. didn't know a single soul at the U of A. And I'm going to travel across the country. Well, uh, we go out with some friends. in a, t- a nearby town. And we had some mutual friends. And we we're going to this party. And I meet this person there. I like hear someone says, hey. You're going to the University of Arizona, right, next year. Well, this girl just got back from there. She's just finished her freshman year. Why don't you go say hi? Uh, you know, you guys get connected, get to know each other, and now you know somebody there. And so it's great. We, we start talking. We're getting excited about it. Uh, wow, another person from Kentucky going to Arizona. But all along, she's assuming that I got into ASU, And I'm assuming she got into U of A, but she was just a freshman at the ASU, and I was going to start at the U of A. And so we're talking for a long time, we're hitting it off, we're becoming great friends, and I say something that confuses her, and she says, wait, are you going to ASU or U of A? And I was like, oh, Arizona, U of A. And something switched in her so quick. (laughs) All that we had built up in this friendship and relationship just immediately gone. She says, oh, gross. I go to ASU, and then she just walks away. And at that time, I didn't understand the college rivalry. I didn't understand the rivalry between ASU and U of A. I didn't understand the animosity. I was crushed and confused. But on that night, for me, rivalry began. Do you understand? All that we had built up to that moment was gone. Anything, anyone going forward, anything going forward for me, anyone that would bear the symbol, anyone that was wearing the combination of even maroon and gold, would not be my friend. You know, see what I'm saying? Amen. So Paul says <laughs> Paul says this is the pattern of selfish ambition and rivalry that rules our hearts in so many ways. When we cannot love because we are so consumed with making sure that our viewpoint is protected, we are motivated by rivalry. This is the spirit that makes you take things personally. every time a critique is given. We are clouded by our prejudice, and we're unable to debate fairly. We're unable to discuss fairly and openly and graciously. Here's the difference between mo- being motivated by truth and motivated by prejudice. One of my favorite pastor is Tim Keller pastor new york explains it this way he says we're motivated when we're motivated by truth here's what happens we come to a relationship and say i have my perspective and you have your perspective but what is the truth let's come together putting our perspective aside and just seek out the truth let's pursue the facts and let's be reasonable with one another let's discuss this openly let's talk about our faults and our fears and our confusions, and let's not be clouded by our needs and our prejudice. That's what it means to be motivated by truth. And it's this crazy pattern, this rivalry and selfish ambition, the pattern of behavior that causes us to say, when we lose in a football game, wait till basketball season. (laughs) And then when we lose in a basketball game, we say, it was the ref's fault. We're always finding something. It couldn't possibly be because they were unprepared or outscored or the lesser team. It couldn't possibly be because selfish ambition makes everything about our needs, not about the truth. It is the pattern of behavior that causes all kinds of fighting. We have to protect our brand. We have to protect our team. We have to protect our perspective and our group and our party we have to at all costs we can't stop and think well, what is the truth and maybe i'm wrong that's what rivalry means in this passage and it is the root of all behavior that causes fighting and then he goes on and says something like it but it's different he says do nothing from conceit see conceit is about About appearances, it's about connecting our feelings with our image, like pretentiousness, despising others when they succeed at something that we wanted. Loving others when they make us look good. So when we love people because they give us something, and when we hate people because they take something, it comes from conceit. We sing a song every single Sunday in our worship. And that's the doxology. It's a brief song. We sing it at the very beginning. It, it, means, it means glory telling. It, it's, doxology means glory giving. We're, we're giving God glory. And we're starting our time together as we gather to say, let's remember who this is about and whose glory this is about. This is about God's glory. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. This is all about God. That means everything that we do from this moment forward is all about giving glory to God. If you didn't know that, now you know. That's why we do that. A conceited person is a person who is hungry for their own glory. In a most twisted way, we replace God's name with our name. And feel in our heart, at least, praise me, from whom all blessings flow. <clears throat> Maybe you're saying, well, that sounds ridiculous. Who does that? Who thinks that, that they are like that? But this is how we act. Paul is reminding us that we are hungry for our own glory. And he just got done with chapter 1, and, he's, and, and, and we, last week we, we read this verse that said, live in such a manner to bring honor and glory to the gospel and to Jesus But conceit says, live in such a way in your life that protects what people feel and think about you. It is a disposition of self-promotion, and it is the heart of every sin. Paul says, do nothing from a motivation like that. It is literally the anti-God state of mind. Survivor just started again. And there's this character on there. I was watching it. I don't watch as much TV as it sounds like. (laughs) (laughs) And they're interviewing all these new characters, and he gets on and he says, I'm gonna make sure, you just watch and see, I'm gonna make sure that whatever I do, I'm gonna be remembered. You're not gonna forget who I am. See, I think that we have this problem that with the idea that we don't matter. We're afraid that we are insignificant. We're we're afraid that people will one day forget about us. We're we're afraid that when we walk into a room, no one will know that we were there. What is behind this action? And even a better question, what's behind the emotion that we feel this need to promote ourselves and to make people recognize us and know us and like us and promote us? The Bible gives us an answer, believe it or not, and it's called sin, And sin has robbed us of our glory because in the Garden of Eden we were glorious. Adam and Eve were glorious and perfect and beautiful in every way. And sin robbed them of their glory. And they would spend, like us, would spend the rest of our lives trying to get that back. Trying to fight for our glory. It is this through and through desire to be useful to others and to our world. And it drives us. It is our driving force. I want to be useful. I want to have a purpose. I want people to value me. And that's our fear, is that if we don't fight for glory, then no one will. And so we must be our own master. Believe me, I know. As the middle of seven children, (laughs) I know what it is like to fight for mine. Because if I didn't, no one would. The second place most familiar to me, other than my home, was the lost and found. At amusement parks, and the zoo, and the airport, and the grocery store, and the park. Where's Pete? Check the lost and found. We probably forgot him. That's This was my life. How many kids do we have? Six. No, I think you have another one. His name's Pete. And he's crying somewhere. Go find him. <coughs> but this drives us. like No one's going to pay attention to me. No one's going to... Consider me. And if I lay down my life for others, then they win and I lose. And that's my biggest fear. Here's another example. Have you noticed all the misspeaking going on in the media? I call it lying. Lying about accomplishments, lying about involvement in certain events. And we look at that from the outside and say, what a, what a fool. Why would you do that? What would motivate someone to lie in such a way? But we do it all the time. I do that. You do that. It comes from this horrible fear of being mediocre, a fear of being insignificant, of marginal and plain. So we have to promote ourselves. And eventually, with this attitude of promoting ourselves and making us look good, we are going to mess up. And then we are going to make the wrong decision and it's going to be exposed. And people say, Oh gosh, well, why would someone do that? Because we're afraid of being marginal. Of no one remembering, of no one knowing. And do you know that this was the original, original sin in the Garden of Eden? We spoke about this briefly. When the, when the serpent tempted Adam and Eve, he didn't he, he did it ultimately by appearing to appealing to their desire to be glorious. He said, You will be like God. Think about it, Eve. Look at what you can get. You'll be like God. Maybe God has forgotten you. Maybe he hasn't considered your needs. Maybe he hasn't considered what would be good for you. Have you considered this? And it was then that she decided, that they both decided that they were going to be their own master. And whenever we operate out of conceit and rivalry, we are saying, I am my master. And this is the most anti-God state of mind. And for that reason, Paul says, do nothing from these things. I know I've been beating you up for about 10 minutes here, but I want you to know that anything, any, anything less of an analysis than this will not get to the heart of the issue of really what's going on inside of us. What is the remedy? Hopefully you knew that we weren't going to just pray and, and say, come back next week hopefully you knew that we are going to get to the heart of the remedy as well, the solution. And it's something tremendous. And it it's something, something must happen inside of us because the problem is inside of us. And this something happens inside of us because it has happened to Christ. It says that Jesus emptied himself of his glory. Even though he had the glory of God, he emptied himself, he voluntarily embraced the worst, the most pitiful, the most putrid of all that you and I have to offer. He became the worst. Romans 15.3 says, for Christ did not... Please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This is Jesus talking about what is happening to him. He's saying, this is not my fault. I have not sinned. I have done everything perfectly. But I haven't considered my preferences primary. I am putting you before me. I am not seeking to please myself. I am humbling myself. I am... am ridding myself of the glory that I deserve and I am absorbing your reproach, your sin, your ugly, your dirty, your wicked, your deceit, your rivalry. It is falling on me. You know what it means to be a Christian? Look at verse 1. If there's any encouragement in Christ, is there? if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, if you have any encouragement, it's because of what Jesus has given to you. If there is any love, it is because of the love that God has given to you. If there's any affection and sympathy, it's because of what Jesus has felt for you. It is to be a Christian is to admit that we have a salvation and mercy from God precisely because of the perfect work and humility of Jesus accredited to us. Everything that we have received is from Jesus. And then Paul says, not this is my paraphrase, knowing this then why On earth are you living as if that's not true? Why do we live as if at the end of the day whoever has the most points wins? Verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves that is yours in Christ. Have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. It is one of the gifts of the gospel. And it doesn't mean... Think harder about Jesus. Think harder about who he is and what he has done. It means that we have this reality of a gift of the gospel, and so we should use it. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ embraced the worst that we have to offer. Jesus took what you and I deserved. We have been conceited. We have been selfishly ambitious. We have been in behavior of rivalry, we have put ourselves in the place of God and said, it is all about me. And Jesus took that on himself. The perfect person, the perfect, is treated as the sinner. He who knew no sin becomes our sin for our sake. Our sin falls on him. The redemption, this redemption of Christ For our sins on the cross covers God's anger towards us and credits righteousness to us. This is all the good stuff that is mentioned in verse 1 that we just read. The benefits of Christ's work being applied to a sinner by grace through faith is verse 1. We have encouragement in Christ. How encouraging is this? That we are not counted according to our faults and our sins and our lack of faithfulness and our character, that's encouraging. That means that, that no one, not a single person, is outside of the possibility of God's grace and love based on their sin, based on their family status, based on their experiences, based on their upbringing. Comfort from love. Paul's wanting us to connect the dots with this love. Look at how you have been loved. And allow this love to overflow in your life towards love for others. Participation in the Spirit. This is talking about a bond of friendship and unity and fellowship with God. And that with a God who cares for us and understands, understands us with a great compassion and great sympathy. We do not just have these ideas about God Of what makes things encouraging or lovely, but we have his affection and sympathy. He became small for us, he cast off his own glory for us. He took what we deserved, and we get what he deserved. We get relationship with God the Father, we get belonging and a purpose, we get glory and his eternal affection. We get everything because he gave everything. I hear Paul asking me another question in this that's not in here, and it sounds like, something like this. What is wrong with you that you feel the need to promote yourself and your needs so much when Jesus loves you like that? Don't you see what God has done for you? Why do you feel the need to respond to every criticism that a person makes about you? Why do you feel the need to give an answer for every time you're misunderstood? Why do you feel the need to fight for every ounce of recognition from others? Why do you feel the need to meet everyone else's needs? Why do you feel the need to still fight for your own glory when God himself emptied himself of his glory to secure yours? Why are you still fighting for your glory? Do you see the perfect balance in verse 4? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Option 1, look only to yourselves. This is pride. I can do it. I am capable. I am valuable because of my character because of my skill because of my virtue option two look only to others this is codependency i must please them i must care for them it they depend on me their glory their value their virtue their character i can't get this wrong but there's a third option look mainly to yours but also to others no i'm sorry flip that look mainly to others But also to yourself, we better now? What kind of church is this? (laughs) This is the gospel working. The gospel working frees us to be encouraged and to encourage others because we know it doesn't rest on us. I don't have to fight for my glory. Go ahead and hurt me. I have Jesus. He's my identity. I don't have to fight for your glory. You need Jesus and I can't fix you. But I'm here for you and I love you, and I'm going to fight this battle with you. It's humbly looking to the interests of others. And this is an indication and a symptom of understanding, believing, embracing, and resting in Christ's perfect righteousness for all that we would ever need. And it is only when we see this mind of Jesus, the mind that was in Jesus, that we can see all that the Bible has to say about our sinfulness and we would not be ashamed that we would read through scripture. And every time you see, if we could boil down the entire Bible, what it says, we would come out with two things that we are sinful and, in, and, 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 and our need of a rescue. And when we read these things, we would not feel ashamed and beat up, but we would say, that's true. I admit that I have been conceited. I have been my own salvation for so long. But Jesus, but Jesus, he took my sin to the cross. And that is my identity. So say what you will about me. I don't deny it. And then the second thing, boiling it all down, would be the holiness and glory of God. See, every time we look at Scripture and where God demands something, we wouldn't say, well, he understands, he's sympathetic, I know he's acting like a real mean guy right there, but he's not that way. No, we would look at Scripture and say, God commands perfection. His virtues and, and commandments are perfect, and there is no room for error. And then we would say, but Jesus, he is perfect. He is perfect where I have failed to meet that command. And my identity is found in His righteousness and not my own. Because the Bible says that by trusting in Jesus, His righteousness is credited to me. And so as God looks at me, He actually sees the face and mind of Christ, who is the perfect Son, obeying every command. Because we will know that God's infinite standard of holiness is met in Jesus and that Jesus died for us. And so we find favor with God not because of who we are but in spite of who we are. Let's pray. For more audio and information please visit HolyCrossTucson.com